All right, well, you can turn over to the book of uh, Romans. My goal is to close out chapter 15 by next week. So then we'll have Resurrection Sunday, Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and then we'll finish up the book of Romans um, after our Resurrection Sunday celebration sometime. You should have an outline there. It's the same outline you had two weeks ago because uh, I didn't have a chance to change it. So <laughs> not a whole lot of changes there. But we are going to actually make it through part of the outline today uh, before we uh, did a little introduction. And I just want to uh, read the text of Scripture for us this morning that we're looking at. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through uh, 7. Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. A couple weeks ago, or last, last week, we looked at just some New Testament images for the church. And we said that, you know, the, the church is really pictured as a family. It's pictured as a fellowship. And it's also uh, pictured as a body. And we went over that uh, a couple weeks ago. But we've been looking at this power of oneness, the power of being one in Christ And that's important to put that little in Christ in there because the whole idea of oneness in the church today uh, crosses some barriers that I personally don't feel comfortable with crossing doctrinally. And so there are times when doctrinally people go to the left or the right of the truth and you have to say, wait a minute, we're not one on that issue, (laughs) And we have to be honest and we have to be open about that. But we've been looking at these seven, seven principles for oneness. And the first one we looked at was bear the burden of the weak in verse 1. And it says there, we who are strong. This doesn't mean um, necessarily the length of your Christian life or how long, you know, how long you've been a Christian or, or even how many Sunday school teach, teach, Uh, lessons you've taught or anything like that. It's really dealing with the aspect of maturity in the faith. And remember, the church was made up, as it is today, of those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. And so what Paul is basically telling the church of Rome is that, you know what, the the people that come into the church who have some hang-ups from their previous life, maybe they're bringing some extra baggage into their life in Christ, uh, it's going to take them a little time to get acclimated acclimated to the, the new life in Christ. And so they may have a couple hang-ups. If they're Jews, they may want to, you know, not eat pork and do certain things. If they're Gentiles, they may have a problem with someone's eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And that became a real issue. All right. But these were things that clearly scripture allowed, gave us the freedom to do in Christ. They were part of our liberty in Christ. But What Paul is saying is don't take advantage of that liberty. Don't take that liberty and just say, well, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want, so I don't care how it affects somebody else. Because that's not what was modeled for us through Paul or even through Christ, whose example we're going to be looking at today. And we looked at that word ought. Now, we who are strong ought to bear. It has the idea of owing a debt, we said. And it really has the idea of obligation. This is not something you get to choose to do as a Christian. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear the, the burden of this person, but I'm not going to bear the burden of that person because I don't like them. That doesn't, that doesn't fly well in, what, in the face of what the New Testament teaches us. And so we're called to bear the burden of the weak. And by the way, we should do that with the idea of 
by the grace of God, there go I. Not with a judgmental attitude. Oh, poor weak brother, let me bear your burden. You know, one day you'll grow up. One day you'll be a mature man or, or woman in Christ. But right now, I, I'm called to bear your burden. You don't do it that way, folks. That's not going to go over well with anybody. But we're to do it in a Christ-like way, and we're going to be looking at that today. And so, first of all, we looked at the idea of bearing the burden of the weak. And then secondly, we said that we had to not please ourselves. This is what he says. How do we do this? Well, we don't please ourselves. You know, one of the the hardest things to overcome is the pleasure of who? Me. Is to overcome what I want when I want it. And uh, this comes out in various forms and various ways in our lives almost daily. But see, our true motivation should be not just to please people to please people. We're not men pleasers. Paul says, don't be that way. But we're doing it because this is pleasing to Christ. This is what Christ calls us to do. And so we are to please not ourselves. And the third thing we said there in verse 2 was that we are to please our neighbor. Please our neighbor. Now, I don't know what kind of neighbor you have where you live. That may be easy. It may be difficult. But here it's talking more in the Christian sense, right? Your brother, your sister in Christ is talking about those who have fellowship together. But even with that being said, the object of this mindset is not for our own pleasure, but to put somebody else's pleasure above ours. To say, you know what, they're more important than we are. And uh, that usually does not come easy to us, does it? At least it doesn't to me, I'll just confess. You know, I need every ounce of the Spirit of God in me to do that. Because the one thing I realized after I became a Christian, I realized how selfish of an individual I was. And the Lord has weird ways of reminding us of that. You know, the one way that the Lord just uh, blesses me with that reminder is when we go over and we see our family in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, I got three young grandkids, 16, 13, 10, boy and two girls. Got a wonderful daughter, wonderful son-in-law. But I remember being together with them on certain occasions that I would deem as very important occasions. Maybe it was a playoff game. Certain football teams were playing. And I remember in church asking my son, hey, we going to watch the game after football? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, usually we, we got to do some stuff with the kids, and I, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, this is kind of critical here. Uh, and it showed me how selfish of an individual I was. Because, see, the kids don't understand that kind of stuff. You know, they want time with you when they want time with you. It doesn't matter what's on the TV. It doesn't matter who, what appointments you have. They just prefer... That, and some of you who have younger children understand what I'm talking about. You know, your life is not your own. You know, when you have that, that baby till its 18th birthday and maybe even after that, your life is not your own. You know, you're called to serve those children. And you're called to raise those children in the admonition of, of the Lord. And it takes every ounce of strength to do that. And usually when you're done doing that part, you don't have any time left for yourself anyway, nor strength. You just want to go to bed. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's, it's a way of God kind of showing us sometimes, you know, that we can be very selfish individuals. We're not to please ourselves. We're to please our neighbors. We're to look out for their edification. That means building up. You know, when you have interaction with the body of Christ a brother or sister in the Lord. Use this filter. This will help you. Is this, what I'm about to say to this person, is this going to build them up or is this going to tear them down? Because we're called to what? We're called to build up each other in Christ. Now that doesn't mean in love sometimes we have to offer some criticism, some correction. This doesn't mean you turn a blind eye to sin in somebody's life and say, oh, well, who am I to judge? No, we don't believe that at all because there are occasions where we're called to judge. But the Bible said, Jesus says, just don't have a big, you know, log hanging out of your eye while you're trying to judge somebody else. 
Make sure your own life's in order. So we're to bear the burden of the weak, please not ourselves, please our neighbor. And then we come to really where we wanted to go last week was the example of Christ. Follow the example of Christ. And if you look at chapter 15, verse 3, this is really what he, uh, where his focus is for us. He says in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Psalm 69. You can go back and you read that in your own time. But Paul quotes that. And, you know, the one thing that we know more than anything else, beloved, is that when it talks about ourselves in Scripture, it uses a Greek word for the first person. It's ego. <laughs> ego. Ego. You know, it's, it's the idea that we're, we're focused on ourselves. You know, we use the word egotistical. You know, you hear somebody speak and, boy, that guy's really egotistical. Who do they think they are? Um, by contrast, the text here says that the Lord Jesus Christ did not please himself. He did not please himself. Now, the last time I checked, those who follow Christ are called what? Christians, right? They're called disciples. They're called Christians. They're called Christians for a reason. They're called little Christ. We should emulate the life of Christ. We should emulate the example that Christ has laid down for us in Scripture. And the most important example that Christ laid down for us is that he did not please himself. It wasn't about him when he was here on earth. And that's the contrast that Scripture lays out for us. He did not please himself. He had a perfect humility, even though he was in human form. And it was totally different from our fallen humanity that we have because we're sons of Adam. I mean, would you agree that we live in a selfish world? I mean, you don't have to go far to figure that out. I mean, even if you don't consider yourself selfish. <laughs> I'm sure that you would say, well, we definitely live in a selfish world. I mean, selfishness is really the mark of the human race when you stop and think about it. I mean, if you don't believe me, take a drive on the freeway in rush hour traffic. I mean, you got guys in their cars that are losing their minds because they want to get somewhere and they can't get there. And the only thing they're concerned about is they're getting from point A to point B faster than everybody else. When we were down in L.A., I was driving, I think it was to the conference one day, and this guy literally pulled up alongside on the, it was, it was on the berm of the, the I-5. It was, I mean, stop, we're stopping traffic. This guy just, bare, he's going like 65. All the dust from the side of the road kicks up. And I'm thinking, where's this guy going to, what's he going to do? And he's just riding on the side of the road, man. This guy was driving in a very selfish way that didn't really care about anybody else. You know, that's the one thing that, Police always do, and they pull over a drunk driver, or they pull over somebody who's speeding, or they pull over somebody who's driving reckless. What are you thinking? Okay, granted, nobody got hurt here, or, you know, whatever, but think of what could have happened. And sometimes it's a very selfish act that ends in tragedy when people get behind the wheel and they're drunk out of their minds, and they go out and they kill somebody. And they say, well, I didn't mean it. Well, it's a little too little, too late at that point, right? The attitude is on most freeways, get out of my way. I'm on a mission. And you know what? I'm not saying, saying that I'm above that. Ask my wife. When I'm on the freeway in rush hour traffic, I'm, I'm struggling along with everybody else to keep my sanity. Okay. And part of me, to be honest with you, wants to be the guy that, you know, goes up. With, but we know it's not right. That would not be the right thing to do. So we don't do it. 
And even when a person becomes a Christian, you know, we still have those old kind of tendencies that, that hang around. And there's a, a warfare that goes on between the spirit and this sinful flesh. Even in the church of Philippi, Paul had to confront them because two people were at odds. And Paul thought it was necessary to send one of, of the company that he was with to settle the matter. And guess who he sent? He sent Timothy, young Timothy, probably the youngest person in his little discipleship group there. But he says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. He knew he could send Timothy because Timothy would put the interests of the Philippines the Philippians uh, uh, um, ahead of his own, the church at Philippi there. And he says, For all look after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. He didn't say some. Paul said all. Everybody's looking out for their own interests. They're not looking out for the interests of Christ Jesus. So I started to ask myself, well, what does the interests of Christ Jesus look like? And so turn over to what we read this morning, Philippians chapter 2, quickly. Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to deal with this text before we go on. Philippians chapter 2. Because what the text in Romans says is that Jesus didn't please himself. He wasn't here to please himself. Rather, he set out to please God for the benefit of others. And so we have... In Philippians chapter 2, an example of Christ's humility, an example of what we should follow if we are going to call ourselves Christians. If we're going to claim that this one who came and died changed our lives, transformed us, and now we have a new life in Christ, if that's who we're claiming to be, then Paul says, you know what, Here's, here are some things to think about. And Paul really repeats what, what he's saying in, in Romans chapter 15, that we should follow Christ's example. He says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, that speaks to his deity. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus wasn't God or that somehow Jesus became God. No, no. It's the very nature of who he is. It says, even though he was God, being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, you've got to imagine this. Jesus is in heaven with the heavenly father, a perfect place, glorious place, holy place. And he's called to come down here to this pit and take on a human body. And live some 33 years here on this earth. You don't think that he had to release some of the grasp of that glory that he was in before to come down here? I mean, I often think of Jesus as a little baby. I mean, here he is, this little baby. But this little baby's God. Can you imagine that? I mean, he, he knows everything. And yet he's trapped like in this human body. So the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature. I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't have sent Jesus as a baby. I would have sent him as a warrior. He would have come down and set things right. He would have been the complete thing. He wouldn't have had to go through the, the growing up and diapers and all that stuff. You know, the, the one song we sing around Christmas time, No Crying He Makes, that's not really right. Because I think Jesus cried just like every other baby cried when they got hungry. Because he was fully human, yet he was fully God. So he wasn't what we see sometimes depict is the baby in the manger with the little halo, you know, and the light shine. That's not what it was about. He... Soiled his diapers like every other baby soils their diapers. And he cried when he was hungry. So he was trapped in this baby 
in this little body, God, the very God that created everything around him. Stop and think of the glory of that. So he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. It gives the indication that he, he's obviously clearly willing to give that up to some degree. The presence of that glory with his heavenly father. And the next part of that verse says, but made himself nothing. Notice he made himself nothing. See, sometimes we think that before Jesus came down on earth, in heaven, here's how it plays out. You know, God creates everything, says, yep, it's all good, good to go. And then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve sin. And God's up there pulling his hair out, going, ah, why did you mess everything up? What am I going to do now? I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, no, Jesus, let's see. We've got to come up with a plan. What's the plan? Let's huddle. So they have a little holy trinity huddle. Jesus, you know what? You're going to go down. You're going to die for, the, for their sins. And you're going you're to allow reconciliation to be possible. Now get down there and do it. As your father, I'm telling you. No. No. The Bible says here, but made himself nothing. See, even though Jesus was completely obedient to the Father's will, don't ever forget that he was completely God himself. Now, we can't comprehend that because our mind thinks logically. But God says, hey, your ways are not, my ways are not your ways. My ways are far above your ways. You can't even begin to grasp who I am. But Jesus made himself nothing. And that's what it seemed like in comparison to who he was in his glory. Here's God trapped in this little baby's body. It says he took on the very nature of a servant. See, he wasn't play acting when he was down here. It wasn't Jesus just, you know, holding his breath for 33 years going, oh, man, I can't wait till this is over. This is actually who he became. He became a servant. God became a servant. Wow. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Do you ever wonder why God made Jesus look like everybody else? He was to be our example. What kind of example could he have been if he would have came down in all his glory? If he would have came down as some supernatural being that wasn't hungry, didn't sweat, didn't cry. We couldn't relate to that. But God said, no, I'm going I'm to allow him to be made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. Once again... Look at what it says. What? He humbled himself. I often thought of my own self and I thought, huh, he humbled himself? Can I humble myself? (laughs) I don't do a very good job of it, to be real honest. Usually when I end up humbling myself... It ends like this. Look at how humble I have become. <laughs> and immediately what, what happened? That just speaks pride to everybody that hears your words. And then you start all over. It's impossible for us to humble ourselves. But it wasn't impossible for Jesus because he was what? He was God. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself How do we become humble? We become humble by usually God bringing things into our lives that we don't like, (laughs) that don't feel good, could be potentially embarrassing at times. But you know what? God has a way of, of keeping us humble. 
sometimes, you know, I'm not a real great musician. I need, like, the music and the chords and everything. And sometimes, you know, you, you're playing with the worship team and saying, wow, this just sounds so good. I think I'm just going to try something on the piano. <laughs> oh. Not try to do something to hit these sour notes. It's like, oh, no, oh, don't just stick to the script. Don't, don't go there. God keeps you humble. He keeps you humble. Well, how humble did it make our Lord? He made himself, it says, he became obedient to death. Now, for you or I, you think, well, how is that humbling? Well, we're not eternal beings. <laughs> You understand? I mean, we, you know, we, we're born and our body lasts so long and then we die. But here is God put in human form and human likeness, making himself nothing, becoming the very nature of a servant, humbling himself. And then being obedient to the father's will, to the point of death. Around Easter time, Resurrection Sunday, people say, well, wow, you know, who, who killed Jesus? Who's responsible? God. God killed God. That's amazing when you stop and think about it. But please understand, it wasn't a last-minute game plan. They didn't have this holy huddle and come up. The Bible says that even before the foundation of the world, just like we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Christ was chosen for this. In eternity past. This is the full on eternal plan of God playing out before us. And he became obedient to death. Even death, it says on a cross, explanation point. Why is that so important? Because death on a cross was the worst way to die. It was the most humiliating way to die. I mean, who would want to be hung on a cross naked there to suffer while people gather around to watch? And maybe even bargain over what belongings you have left and hurl insults at you as you give up your last breath. What a horrible way to die. It was very humiliating. And it was meant to be humiliating. The Romans used it to make examples of people. A modern day example would be when ISIS was in its heyday. Remember, they were crucifying people. They were killing people. Horrible things. And they would do it publicly. Why? Because it was a testament to their power, they thought. It was a testament. Hey, you cross us, here's what's going to happen to you. And that's what the Romans would do with crucifixion. It was an example. It was meant to be a humiliating process. But have you ever stopped and asked this question, what would happen to us if Jesus had pleased himself instead of coming to earth as a man, Instead of dying for our sins on a cross, where would we be today? If Christ had put his own interests first. If Christ would have said, yeah, it looks like a nice plan, but no, nah, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to feel good. Once Jesus asked this question of his disciples, if you look over at John the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. They're having this discussion here about bread. It starts all the way back in verse 22, but for time's sake, let's pick it up at verse 41. John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They had a problem with that. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he then say, I have come down from heaven? What was their point? Their point was saying, hey, wait a minute. This is the guy. Remember Mary... You know, she kind of had a baby a little too soon after they were married. I think there's some hanky-panky going on there before they were married. That's what they're saying. That's really what they're pointing to. They're basically saying, you know what? You were conceived illegitimately, Jesus. Isn't this the, the guy that's 
son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? I mean, that's because basically he's saying he's God. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And that's what most critics do. Rather than come and confront you face to face and say, hey, I got a problem with what you're saying. Here's what it is. They meet over in the corner and they have a little grumble session. Well, that's what they were doing. The only problem was is they were dealing with Jesus. Who was who? God. Who knew everything. Whether they even grumbled and the words came out of their mouth or they just grumbled in their hearts and their minds. Jesus knew what was in their heart. He says, why do you grumble among yourselves? Verse 44 no one can come, down, come to me, look at what he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's he doing? He's really, he's explaining the doctrine of election here. He's pointing out <clears throat> that he and he alone is the true bread from heaven. And anybody who comes to God for life has to come to him, but it's only when the Father draws him that that's even possible. And then they go through some discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, on the prophets, or on the, uh, yeah, the prophets there. But look all the way down at verse 60. Because the disciples heard this whole discussion. They're standing there. And it says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, wait, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Talking about my, my flesh is the true food, my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, they're, he's refer, they're referring to verse 56 and verse 57. He says, but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. So not only were the Jews grumbling, but even his disciples were grumbling about this. <clears throat> he said to them, do not take offense at this. Verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What's he saying to them? He's saying to them, you know what, does this offend you? What I'm, the, the language I'm using? He's saying, you know, if, if this offends me, I can just leave. <laughs> what if I just go back to where I came from? Because at that point in his humanity, he was probably thinking, you know, I don't know about this. These, these people are not going to be grateful for what I'm about to do for them. Maybe I'll just float the idea. Now, what if I just went back to where I was before? What if that happened? What if Jesus never went to the cross? What would happen if I just pleased myself, Jesus is saying, and went back to heaven instead of dying for your sins? What would that mean? It says, it goes on in the text there, and it says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. If you're trying to come to Christ by your flesh, by your own intellect, by what you're trying to... Give it up. It's not going to happen. Can't happen. The words that I have spoken, verse 63, to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do what? Not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning... Who those were who did not believe. Why did, how did he know that? Because he was God. Remember, he's God. And who it was who would betray him. See, so many times people think that, you know, poor Jesus got taken advantage by Judah, Judas. No. It's all part of the, all part of the deal. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is what? Granted him by the Father. 
that's a hard doctrine. You mean I don't come to Jesus because I just want to come to Jesus? No. The reason you come to Jesus is because the Father draws you. And that's over and over it's repeated in Scripture. Ephesians tells us, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. I mean, some of you are pretty old, but you're not old enough to be around before the foundation of the world. (laughs) So none of us were even around when God picked and chose us for salvation. Well, how did he choose? He chose on he chose us on a basis of his grace and his love for us. He didn't choose us because of who we are. He didn't choose us because of how we're gifted. He didn't choose us because of what we look like or how smart we are. He chose us before we our bodies were even here. Well, how can he do that? Because he's God. And who are we to stand here and say, wait a minute, how dare you choose me and not him? That's that's not our call. We can't make that call. Why? Because he is God. We are not. But look at the response in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, what happened? They turned back and no longer walked with him. It was such a cage-rattling experience for them that they just, they couldn't follow him anymore. This is, this is crazy. So Jesus said to the 12, look at how direct he is. Turns right to the 12. Do you want to go away as well? <laughs> They're all walking away. Go ahead, why don't you follow them? Simon P- Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What's that saying? That's saying the the gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive to Christ. There's there's not many roads to heaven. There's one. There's one way. Only one way. Verse 69, they say, And we have believed and have come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One from God. Jesus answered, to them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Look, and yet one of you is the devil. He's kind of showing his cards a little bit. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. See, Jesus knew everything that there ever was to know because he was what? He was God. And yet, back to Romans 15, 3, it says, for Christ did not please himself. He did not please himself. Did he have the right to please himself? Probably, yeah. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But as we said, he made himself nothing. He, he made himself a servant. And when it says here that, you know, he did not please himself, that's speaking of that attitude in Christ Jesus that Paul expects us to have. That we, we read in, in Philippians chapter 2. That same attitude should be the Christ-likeness of Christ in us. Sometimes we're going to want to do something. We're going to want to carry something out. We have something planned. And you know what? It's not going to work out. And rather than fight and fight and fight, we should just say, you know what, God? It's not my will, but yours. Maybe this isn't meant to be. Maybe you're opening up a a different avenue to approach this problem. Help me. Give me the eyes to see it rather than just stick to my guns and fight, fight, fight. See, despite his perfectly righteous, sinless life, Jesus could say with David, and that's what it says here, the reproaches of those who reproached me fell on, or you fell on me. See, Jesus, if he wanted to please himself instead of the Father, he would have not been able to 
divest himself of his glory and become a man. Certainly not a bondservant. And yet the Bible tells us in John 17 and other places, 17.5, it says, glorify, glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before he was arrested in the garden at Gethsemane, he asked the Father, you remember this? He was in prayer. He was, the Bible says that he was, he was so stressed that literal, he, he was, from his pores, he was sweating blood. And that's actually a medical condition. You get so stressed out, your blood vessels, your brain, the blood starts coming out of your pores. In his humanity, he was stressed. And it says, he cried out, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Do we have any other game plan? <laughs> Father, Holy Spirit, hey, you know, uh, this is getting a little tough down here. And I'm about ready to take on the sins of the world upon myself of all who would ever believe when I'm crucified. And I'm not feeling, just not feeling it in my, my body right now. If there's another way, now would be a good time. But how does he end that? Yet not as I will, but what? As thou will. This is Jesus who is God. And he's brought himself so low to the point that he's willing to put the Father's will even above his own. And that was his supreme purpose while he was here on earth, was to accomplish the Father's will. It wasn't, he wasn't here with his own game plan and his own agenda and his own purpose. He was here to accomplish the Father's will. It tells us that throughout all the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels, constantly he's saying it. I mean, if you just look at the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to the twelve, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What was he saying? The thing that gives me sustenance, guys, is not a loaf of bread. It's doing the Father's will. Would we have that kind of attitude in our own heart? Where we put the Father's will above even our own food and our desire for food. In John 5, verse 18, he's talking to a bunch of unbelieving Jews in the temple. And they were already upset with him. Because it says that calling God his own father, he made himself equal with God. And that just blew their mind. They were ready to, you know, their eyes were rolling back in their head. Get the clubs, we're going to take this guy out. And he said this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is God saying this. Do you understand this? I can do nothing on my own initiative. That's what Jesus said. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? He goes on, and he says, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 18, verse 30. Verse 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven John 6, 38, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In John 8, 25, he's speaking to another group of Jews in the treasury, the temple treasury. And they asked him, who are you? They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's John 8, 25, 27, and 29. See, he came into this world, beloved, to fulfill the wonderful plan of God to gather all the redeemed to glory. That's his purpose. That's what the Father sent him here. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews says, 
Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, listen, was faithful to him who appointed him. Speaking of the Father. Yet Jesus' heavenly Father did not force his Son to become incarnate and force him to die for the sins of the world. Because as he explains in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are what? We're one. We're one and the same. See, we like to think logically. We think, okay, you have God the Father up there. He's like the boss in heaven, you know. And, and then you have Jesus the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit. He's kind of all over the place. And, you know, it's a Father that kind of keeps everything. No, that's not how it works. While he was here on earth, he yielded his will to his Father's will. So when you read John 3.16, For God gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. The Son was as much part of that giving as God the Father was. Strike from your mind the picture of God the Father kind of giving Jesus the boot. Go down there. You got to go down there and die for him. No, please let me stay here in glory. That's not how it played out. And in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says this, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on what? My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. See, we don't have the power to lay down our life and to take it up again. We may have it within ourselves to take ourselves out. But we're not coming back on our own authority. Jesus was able to give his life as a sacrifice and yet raise his life from the dead. So when it says, have this attitude in Philippians, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, please understand, this is not like a Sunday school assignment. Go home this week and make sure you practice having this attitude that you'll have in Christ Jesus. It's not going to work that way. This is something that has to be supernaturally done. It has to be done by the word of God. It has to be done by the power of the spirit. Then we are able to be conformed to Christ in his willingness to please God at any cost. And that's what it means to be Christ-like. The idea that we would stand before God and say, you know what, God, whatever it takes today, let me be pleasing to you in word, thought, deed. Whether it feels good, whether it costs me, it doesn't matter. I just want to do what you want me to do today. How many times do we not start our day off with that prayer See, that's the prayer of a humble servant. That's a prayer of someone, a Christian, who knows who they are in Christ. God, just use me today, whatever it might be. Despite people misunderstanding Despite people ridiculing, despite all the slander and persecution, possibly even death. Despite all that, Lord, just, just help my life for the next 24 hours, for the next 12 hours, for the next hour be pleasing to you. See, that's the attitude that will characterize every true believer whose life is conformed to Christ. And as a result of that, then we go back and it says, wow, okay, so we're not supposed to please ourselves. We're supposed to please each other. Why? Why is Paul saying that? Because that's what Christ did. That's what Christ did. And he wants us to be clear in our understanding of our purpose here on earth. It's to be the salt and the light. And that can't happen if there's constant, you know, church battles going on within the body of Christ. 
over things that are not even important issues. Paul's saying, you know what? He's saying to the Jew, you know what? Okay, you don't, I, I get it. You don't eat pork. Just let it go. Let it go. And he's saying to the Gentile, okay, I get it. You're a little upset. These, these guys are eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, and you came out of that, and it really, just let it go. You don't have to point out every little thing in everybody else's life constantly, thinking that somehow you're above it all, because none of us are. And when Jesus was here on earth and he was God, think of all the ridicule, all the scorn, all the slander that he put up with as God. And yet said he opened not his mouth. I mean, I might go a couple minutes in a conversation if someone's constantly ripping me down and just going after me. A couple minutes, maybe, at best. Sooner or later, you know, I'm going to get in the defensive posture and I'm going to start. Oh, no, wait a minute. You're saying this about me. What about this in you? And I'm going to start in. All of us go there. All of us do that. But Christ didn't. See, that's why when we're called into confrontation with one another, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, you know, if you've got an issue with somebody, what are you supposed to do? Text them. Send them an email. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go. And what? Talk to them. What a novel thing. Why does the Bible tell us that? Because you know you go and you talk to somebody face to face and you share maybe something hard that needs to be said with that person. You can see by their expression, are they receiving it or are they not? You can't see that in a text or an email. You can't even see that in a phone call. You, know, you can read their body language. They're standing there like this. You're going to tell me. Are they open? Are they, are they, oh man, brother. See, I mean, you can tell a lot. Plus, it allows for the opportunity of instant resolution. Instant reconciliation. Okay, maybe you disagree on something. Go to that brother, that sister. Talk about it. In humility. Don't talk. Don't go with the idea you're going to have their head on a platter by the time the conversation's over. That's not going to go over well. But go there with the, the attitude that Christ had. You know what? I'm not going to attack anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to this person. And I'm going to say, you know what? I understand you have an issue. Can you tell me what it is? And if I've done anything to offend you, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But I need to know what it is. And maybe they'll say something. Maybe you agree with it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you can clarify, well, you know, when I said that or I did that, I, that that's not what I was thinking. It was just kind of an offhand comment. That wasn't, I don't really believe that about you. It was just, a, maybe I was trying to be funny or maybe I was, whatever. And you can clarify it right there. And then they have the opportunity to say, well, you know what? You really hurt me, but you came to me and I really appreciate that. We've, you know, I forgive you. And what happens? Then immediately it's gone. It should be. That's so much easier than texting away back and forth. Well, they wrote this. I wonder what they meant by that. I don't know. I think they meant this. Well, no, I think they meant that. Okay, well, let's see what. It just gets lost in the fray. You know, our society today has lost the skill of communication with our own kids. They don't know how to communicate anymore. I mean, my wife and I at times, we go out for dinner. We, we find ourselves in. We, we catch ourselves. But we'll be sitting there eating, and we both got our phones out. And then we look up. It's like, this is really stupid. What are we doing? <laughs> Put this away. Because it's just so much easier, you know, rather than to actually have a conversation. You just get lost in the little whatever. So this first thing here, follow the example of Christ, is focused on the point that he did not please him Self. He did not please himself. We're going to press on to the, the next one here. Be patient with me. We're going to go fast. Verse 4, Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have what? Hope. That we might have hope. See, this fourth 
point here is that we have hope through the scriptures. Whatever was written in earlier times, obviously he's referring to the Old Testament. They were written for our instruction. It's important for us to have a balanced approach to, to the, the whole of scripture. Okay, on Wednesday nights we're going through 1 Samuel. That's an Old Testament book. Sometimes we're in a New Testament book. Right now we're in an Old Testament book. Why? Because you don't just write off the Old Testament. There's a lot of value in studying the Old Testament. And it was written earlier for our instruction. See, don't ever forget that all Scripture has the benefit, spiritual benefit for Christians, just as much as it did in Paul's day, it does for us today. When you stop and you think about some important truths about the Bible, first of all, I want you to understand that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible comes from God. And that's very important for us to understand that. Because if we don't understand that, then you're not going to find value in reading it. And you're not going to understand that it's a supernatural spiritual book. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, that if you're not spiritual, if you haven't come to Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit residing within you, you're going to have a very difficult time understanding the words on these pages. It says the natural man understands not the things of the Spirit. So the first step is asking God for help, asking God for salvation, asking God to save you, and understand that the Bible is from God. When Paul says that everything was written in the past, it was written to teach us, he's saying that the whole of Scripture, that's how he's, he's speaking The point is that God caused the human writers of the Bible to write as they did because it's a supernatural book from the Lord himself. Remember, he just got done quoting Psalm 69. That's why he brings that up. Isn't all this, all the word of God from God? Secondly, everything in the Bible is for our good and for our profit. Everything in the Bible is for our good and for our profit. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped as a believer? Then start reading and applying the Scripture. Everything in the Bible is for our good and for our profit. It doesn't say some Scripture. It says all Scripture. Now, some may be a little more applicable than others, but that's okay. It's all the Word of God. And thirdly, nothing in the Bible is without value. Now, you maybe have read through some portions of the Old Testament. You say, I don't know if I agree with you. I get it. I mean, there are some portions of the Old Testament. I read it, and it's like, what in the world is this talking about? Who cares? Who begat? Who begat? Who begat? Who begat? But it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It may not practically apply to us today in some form or fashion, but it's still his word. John Calvin said this about the idea that nothing in the Bible is without value. He said, this notable passage shows us that the oracles of God contain nothing vain or unprofitable. It would be an insult to the Holy Spirit to imagine that he taught us anything which is of no advantage to know. Let us Also know that all that we learn from the scriptures is conducive to the advancement of godliness. Although Paul is speaking of the Old Testament, we are to hold the same view of the writings of the apostles. If the spirit of Christ is everywhere the same, it is quite certain that he has accommodated his teachings to the edifications of his people at the present time by the apostles as he formerly did by the prophets. So we want to understand this hope through the scriptures. And then also, next, quickly, reliance on his divine power, verse 5. See, the only way you're going to do this Christ-likeness thing is through the power of Christ. He says in verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, how does he do that? Through his word, that's what he just told us, grant you to be the same mind, look, with one another according to Christ. So it's kind of this way. God who gives the perseverance 
he requires as well as the encouragement. He gives it both. And that's what's kind of important for us to understand. Is this isn't something you come up with on your own. It says that the Lord would grant this to be of the same mind with one another. This doesn't just magically happen because you hang out together. It's a call for believers to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. It's under his umbrella that we are all one. We have nothing in common outside of Christ. I mean, yeah, you may like the same foods, you may like whatever, but I'm saying spiritually, we have nothing in common outside of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important to, when you realize that and you understand that, wow, when there's a, there's a faction, there's a division in the body of Christ, how hurtful that can be. It doesn't just hurt those two people, it hurts everybody. And that's Paul's illustration when we talked about the body, right? I mean, if you smash your big toe, you know, that's, that's going to cause your body to ache. You're going you're gonna to feel that. You can't somehow just dis- disassociate that pain in your big toe from the rest of your body. Why? Because you're one body, but you have many parts. And then he closes this little section here in verse 6. Why do we do this? Why is this so important, Paul? That together, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, look at that phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, except for his plea on the cross when he was temporarily separated from the Father. Uh, don't ask me to explain it because I can't, but that's what the Bible says. As he took the full burden of, of the sin of all who would believe upon him, when he cried out what? Did he say, my father? No. What did he say? My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Outside of that, Jesus has always referred to God as his father. See, and it was for that reason, among others, that these Jewish leaders denounced Jesus as a blasphemer because he called God his father. That's why they were so upset, making him equal with God in John five eighteen. And so here he's calling us as believers to glorify the God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing? He's emphasizing the deity of Christ once again. He's not some adopted son of God as we are. He is God. He's the unique, the only begotten from the Father who's full of grace and truth, the Bible says in John 1. He's the promised Messiah, the Christ. He's the Lord. Completely equal to God in every way. In deity. Even in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul cries out to the Ephesian church. He says, blessed be the God and Father, what? Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Over and over you see that as... His title. And it's important for us to see that here. That we are one as a church because of who Christ is. And he's laid down an example for us to follow. And then Paul says in verse 7, Therefore... Based on what I just told you, based on the idea that, that you should be constantly looking out, carrying the burden of the weak, not pleasing yourself, please your neighbor, build them up, follow the example of Christ, find that hope in Scripture, rely on that divine power, with one voice glorifying God, therefore, welcome one another. What's that mean? It's kind of welcome each other into the body of Christ. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, sometimes in churches, people get kind of particular. Well, I don't know why that person's coming to church. Who are you? Did you save yourself? Is this your church? I don't think so. This is God's church. 
So it doesn't matter what our backgrounds may be. It doesn't even matter how vile we were before we came to Christ. Once Christ has saved us, beloved, the Bible says that all things have become new. That we are one with him, just as everybody else who's in Christ is one with him. And God forbid that we should ever judge each other on a basis of anything other than being one in Christ. And that's what Jesus prayed in John 17. I'll close with this. He says, Father, I pray that they would may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect, perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and didst love them even as you have loved me. They will know us by our love and our unity with one another. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us wisdom as we live this Christian life. Lord, a lot of times we get off on our own our own track and we're doing what we want and we forget to ask, hey, wait, is this your will? So, Lord, for the Christians here today, I pray that we would start, even on a daily basis, making that a matter of prayer. Lord, help me to do what you want me to do today. Help me to set my agenda aside. Help me to be sensitive to your spirit. Help me to be sensitive to your leading and your guidance, despite the cost. And if there's any here here today who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I appeal to you, based on the authority of the word of God, that you would cry out to the only Savior there is, cry out to Jesus, the Christ who died for your sins on Calvary. If that you feel that yearning, that desire to come to Christ, don't put it off. I pray that you would humble yourself before the cross. That you would ask Christ, that you would ask God the Father to allow all these things to become clear. Mainly your own sinfulness before a holy God and mainly the only fix for that the Savior who died and was risen on the third day. When he died, he died for you. He died for me. And I pray that you would realize that and confess him as your Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.